This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey folks, welcome to Being Human, episode two. We're off to the races. Just as a reminder, particularly for those of you who are joining us new, wondering what this show is about, it's all about being human-sized. And it's a very simple idea, but I have found it to be profoundly life-changing for me. Most human beings spend much of our time anything other than human-sized. The most common things we do is we get bigger than human-sized or we get smaller than human-sized. And when we do that, we become disconnected. We become disconnected from ourselves, from our precious relationships. We're no longer able to connect to people, for example, that irritate us, difficult people. Most profoundly, we don't get disconnected from God, but we do get disconnected from our awareness of God, and that's a problem. And so you might be thinking, well, what does it mean to be bigger and smaller? We will be talking about this in depth through the course of this show I covered it a bit in the first episode, but basically, anytime we get bigger, we are trying to manage life by overcompensating. And so sometimes it's easier to see someone who's not human-sized rather than seeing it in yourself. So if you've been in a meeting and that one person always has to have the last word, they always have to be right, sometimes getting bigger means that they're no longer listening to learn, they're interrupting, sometimes even dominating, things like that. One of the more subtle ways that we get bigger is when we give advice when the person wasn't asking for advice. I don't know if you're prone to that, but that's something that I tend to do. Somebody is sharing with me about their life or about their day, and I disconnect from them, and I end up in a false reality. That's what reactivity does, is it puts us in a false reality, and I start giving them advice, or at least my brain it starts thinking of how I can help them, what I can say to them to make things feel better. And I'm not aware in the moment that they're not asking for my help. They're not asking for my advice. What they're asking for from me is human connection. They want to be listened to. They want to feel seen and cared for. But I've disconnected, gotten bigger, and I'm thinking about fixing, which is a way of shrinking their problem down smaller than me. That would be a simple example of getting bigger. Getting smaller can sometimes be um, easier to notice because it's when people kind of move into self-protection. Have you ever been in a meeting maybe where you suddenly realize, I am not okay in this room being exactly myself? Maybe several meetings ago, somebody said something to you and you suddenly realized, ah, I can't bring my whole self. And so when we get smaller, we can sometimes get quiet. That's a common way of getting smaller. Sometimes we never speak up in the meeting and then we have our own meeting after the meeting, right? Where we feel safe to be ourselves again. But sometimes getting smaller can be interesting where it might look like flattery, where you actually don't tell someone the truth. You are flattering them because you don't feel safe to bring your whole self and your whole opinion. What gets interesting if we look at the bigger and smaller dynamic in the family 
in marriages. It's very common that these become a predictable, repeatable pattern where one of you tends to get bigger and the other one tends to get smaller. And in some situations, then that perpetuates where the bigger person gets bigger and the smaller person gets smaller. And it's not good. It's not good. We're, we're very disconnected. Now, there is a third category. This is less common, but we do see it a lot in the world today. We see it also in social media. And it's not just bigger and smaller. Some people get inhuman. What I mean is they treat others inhumanely. Let's just look at today in 2024. We have Israel and Palestine. We have Ukraine and Russia. We have these terrible conflicts where innocent people are being killed. If I could oversimplify this, because the humans involved have stopped seeing the other side as human. And now they're inhuman. They're treating them inhumanely. Some of you have had a family member who did this to you. They treated you with less than human, um, with no worth and no dignity. Maybe the simplest way you can notice this is on social media. I'm primarily on Twitter and I'm also a bit on Facebook. I'm a bit on Instagram. I don't know what you're on with your social media preferences. If you're wise, you're probably like, I'm not on any of them because they're all crazy. Yeah, they really are both wonderful and terrible, aren't they? Social media, there's some amazing things about them. And man, it's a challenge. But by golly, is Twitter the most reactive, I think. That's one of the reasons I'm on Twitter is to practice managing my own reactivity because people on Twitter are so quick to treat each other inhumanely on Twitter. You see it on social media. We forget that each other are human beings with dignity, deserving respect and love, and we treat them inhumanely. The whole point of this podcast is being human-sized, which is what God invites us to. When we are human-sized, we're now connected. And this opens up all kinds of possibility, including the ability to more easily and quickly connect to God's presence and God's love. Have you ever noticed that when you're stressed or irritated? Maybe it's as simple as someone cutting you off as you're driving. Maybe it's a really challenging relationship you have. Have you ever noticed that when you are full of reactivity, you forget the Lord? You forget that God's with you. That's the problem with reactivity. That's why as a pastor, I've spent several years teaching people about the science of reactivity and the nature of it because it puts us in a false reality. We're no longer in reality, whereas God is in truth. Jesus said you can know truth and truth can set you free. When Jesus said that, I don't believe he just means eternal life and salvation. I believe he means every day you and I have the power to stop and pause and reconnect and therefore open our soul up to the possibility of God's presence and God's love. So on this podcast, not just the Being Human podcast, but also the one I hosted for five years, Managing Leadership Anxiety, it's a rich tradition to light a candle. Those of you joining me on video, you could grab a candle now. You could pause the video right now and go grab your own candle this candle I'm lighting today is a Capable Life candle. My organization is called Capable Life. We help people lower reactivity and increase connection with themselves, with their people, with God. So we have our own candle here. We use a three-wick candle to remind us of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It also takes three times longer to light a three-wick candle, and that gives us more chance to pause. And uh, this one is a eucalyptus mint. For me, that's a smell of home, of Australia. God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, in whom all things are made, 
and in whom we live and move and have our being. We don't welcome you, God. You're already here, but we do relax into your presence. God the Son, Jesus, who emptied yourself and came all the way down. In the wonderful words of John 1.14, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way Lewis Smedes talks about it, where he says, Jesus came down, the Word became flesh, and he packed his pajamas and his toothbrush with him. Jesus, you're here to stay. Thank you for dying for us, and thank you, Jesus, for raising from the dead reminding us even in our worst moments that death is no longer the end. Life comes after death. God the Spirit. Man, that day that Jesus ascended into heaven, I think the disciples had to be both excited and terrified. I know I would have been. At heaven and navigate this world alone, but Holy Spirit, we're not alone because we have a love-soaked, God-shaped, Jesus-cruciform-shaped Holy Spirit that is with us, that you animate us, you give us life and love. So God... Thank you. And we just light this candle in faith that you are as present to us as the light we see in this candle. Okay, a couple of things today. I'm actually going to give you a very tangible tool to survive uh, the 2024 election. How about that? How's that for a promise? So let's begin with a quote. Here's what Viktor Frankl says. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so let's talk about the science of reactivity because this is what Viktor Frankl is getting at here, the stimulus. Frankl says between stimulus and response, there is a space, there's an opportunity to be different and do different. And so one of those most difficult stimuli for humans is reactivity. It is a form of anxiety clinically. It's clinically called chronic anxiety. If you ever want to Google this, you could just Google systems theory and chronic anxiety. You could find all kinds of materials on it. Quick promo, you could buy my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. I talk all about it in that book, particularly for leaders on how to lower reactivity. But really, all you need to know for now, just for the sake of this podcast, as we roll out these ideas, is a few simple things. Number one, reactivity is based on a false need. Okay, reactivity is a type of anxiety. There are all kinds of anxieties. What's fascinating about anxieties is they all have a different playbook. They don't all act the same. They're not all caused by the same stimulus and they all show up differently. So each anxiety has its own playbook. But if we just look at some anxieties like trauma, for example, trauma is a form of anxiety. It's based on something real. Something real happened to you and Your body and your mind and your memories made meaning out of that real event and now your trauma activates and triggers your body. Another form of anxiety is acute anxiety. Acute anxiety is actual life and death. Acute anxiety is the one where your adrenaline gets going and you get really sharp and it happens super quick. So like if you ever have to swerve to avoid a car accident, that's acute anxiety. But also if you've ever lost a child on a playground or in a public place and You drop everything and you look for your child. That's acute anxiety. Like trauma, acute anxiety is based on something real. Now, we could go down the list of all the anxieties. We could talk about grief. Grief is based on something real. But reactivity or chronic anxiety, it's fascinating because it's based on something false. By which I mean, it's a false need that you believe you must have to be okay in the moment. 
that you don't actually need to have. Later in the episode, I'll give you some examples of false needs, but a question you could be asking yourself right now is, what do I think I need that I don't really need? I believe I need things that I don't really need. For example, for me, I believe everyone should always be courteous to each other. And when people are discourteous to me or to each other, I get reactive, typically bigger. I kind of insert myself in the situation. But that's not a real need. It's a false need. Now, there's nothing wrong with courtesy. There's nothing wrong with having a value that people should be courteous to each other. That's a good thing. But when somebody breaks that value of mine, I kind of lose my mind. Rather than having a deliberative response fueled by God's Spirit, instead I have an autopilot response of reactivity. I get really angry. So number one thing about reactivity, it's one of the few anxieties that is based on something false, a false need. The second thing that's interesting about reactivity is it's one of the few anxieties, in fact, I think it's the only anxiety that's contagious. We catch reactivity from each other. We don't catch trauma from each other. We don't catch acute anxiety from each other. We don't even catch grief from each other. But we do catch reactivity or chronic anxiety from each other. And this now gets to the heart of why our relationships have so much trouble, why people leave jobs in the workplace, why people burn out. Reactivity would be the simplest and maybe the most simplistic explanation of 2020, why our whole culture seemed to lose our minds in 2020, because we all went into lockdown to protect the spread of COVID. And instead, we simply caught reactivity from each other. Reactivity can also explain something large like the January 6th insurrection for those of you in North America, those of you familiar with it. When we get reactive, when we don't get what we think we need, when our false needs are not being met, we tend to move into getting smaller and we go into self-protection or we get bigger and we move into self-aggrandizement. Some people move into that inhuman category where we strip people of their dignity, no longer see them as human beings and treat them as less than human. And now we are disconnected. And so that's really the third idea of reactivity. It's one of the fastest forms of disconnection. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. As a pastor, I'm simply interested in helping us cultivate our precious relationships. 
Of course, that means with our loved ones, our family and our friends. But if we're gospel people, I'm sorry to tell you that part of your precious relationships are also your enemies. Those people that drive you crazy. (laughs) Those people that the only reason you love them is Jesus commanded you to love them, right? Like if left to your own devices, you would blow them off. But the gospel compels us to love our enemy, even radically to walk an extra mile for our enemy. Those are also part of our precious relationships, even if we don't want them to be. And of course, our most precious relationship is sometimes our most elusive relationship, and that's our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. It's difficult to have a close, visceral relationship with an invisible, ever-present God, especially when we're disconnected and especially when we're reactive. So it's contagious, it's based on a false need, And that false, that's the word that can really clue you into your gospel and your engagement of God because Jesus sets us free and the way we are free is when we are living in reality, living in truth, no longer living out of assumption, no longer living out of what we think we know for sure, now living by faith in the truth of God. I make this sound very easy. It's very hard to do. Back to the Viktor Frankl quote. Here's what he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. The challenge and the invitation for all of us is to learn to notice reactivity so that rather than going on autopilot, we can actually be deliberative. We can pause in that space and we can relax into the Lord. We can reconnect. We can be aware of ourselves. what's going on in me? And then we can reach out and connect to God only to discover that God's right there, even if we didn't notice him. So what we try to do is we pause long enough to deliberate about our response so that our response is a deliberative response, not a reactive response. Think about a moth and a flame. What gets interesting in these responses is how predictable they become. Not only does our reactivity become predictable, but it also becomes recurring. And so if you just pause long enough, you can start to think about the recurring predictable behaviors, the types of people that irritate you, the types of situations that generate reactivity in you. And now you've got a real superpower because rather than that autopilot response, like a moth to a flame, you've seen that, right? Someone sticks out a little moth buzzer And just, it's predictable. The moth is going to fly into that flame and they're going to get burned every time. And even though a moth gets burned, the next moth just goes right in and does it. You know, I grew up in Western Australia. I spent a lot of my teenage years driving on red dirt roads in Australia. A lot of the part of Australia where I was raised is pretty dry, but once in a while that had these torrential floods and these red dirt roads would form ruts in the road where we're all driving on the same part of the road And it's interesting when you're driving on the road, you want to stay out of the ruts, right? Some of you have had this experience in your own driving, but there's that momentum to kick you in the rut. It can be quite difficult to stay off the ruts. You just tend to fall back into them. That's a little bit about how reactivity works with predictable patterns. In case this is a bit theoretical, let me give you some practical examples. For me, a predictable recurring pattern in my life, I'll give you a couple. One is I'm a people pleaser. I'm just wired to want people to be happy with me and I will happily sacrifice my well-being if you are happy with me. And so what's predictable is if I get criticism, like when I was a lead pastor for a long time, 
Like every lead pastor I know, I had my share of criticism. What's predictable is I would always take it personally, whether it was reasonable criticism or unreasonable. There are people who have an opinion, and actually, if you had the humility, you can receive their criticism and grow and become a better person. That's reasonable criticism. And then there are those people, every church has a small handful of people that get their kicks out of kicking the leader. These are unreasonable critics. You can't reason with them. You can't come to resolution. They constantly have an issue with you. They distort the truth, these kinds of people. As a people pleaser, what's predictable about me is I couldn't discern the difference between the two. What's predictable about me is I'd always get hurt equally by both. I I have to work between that stimulus and that response. I have to work in that space because what's predictable about me is I'm a pleaser. I disappoint you if I let you down. If you're critical of me, I will get reactive. For you, another simple example might be that you're a perfectionist. One of the signs you can find your reactivity is by your overreaction. So perfectionist, for example, it's very typical for you that when you make a mistake that doesn't really matter very much, your reactivity, the story you tell yourself, makes it a massive deal. For example, you send out an email, and even though perfectionist, I know what you guys are like, even though you checked that email eight times before sending it, even now some of you are like, by eight, do you mean 15? However many times, perfectionist, you guys are prone to overcheck your work. Let's say you send it out and there's a spelling mistake on it. In reality, in reality, no big deal. But your reactivity is telling you, Armageddon, like the end of the world is near, right? For you, it might be control when you don't have control. Another one for me is I have a need to be there for people when they're hurting. And so my brain has trouble telling between your need and my need to be needed. That's a false need. Now, again, you might be watching this or hearing this and saying, that sounds like a really good thing to be there for people when they need something. It is a good thing. It's a gospel thing. But the problem of it is I have to have it to be okay. It's become, if you will, in Bible language, an idol in my life. I have to have people's approval. I have to be there for when people need me. You have to do it perfectly to be okay. And now you can start to see how reactivity becomes a spiritual thing. It twists a good gift from God into a false need that we're enslaved to. What this can look like, like in my precious relationships, let's just talk, for example, in my immediate family. If my wife or if one of my kids are simply telling me about a challenge in their life. Maybe it's as simple as something that happened that day. Between that stimulus and my response, I have to work extra hard at quietening the reactivity that wants me to get bigger and give them advice. When you are telling me your problem, my brain is telling me they need you to fix it, Steve. When actually most of the time people are not asking me to fix it. Now, you can imagine in a classic marriage, Maybe I've had to do a little bit of work on that. Maybe my wife has had to coach me on when she talks about her day that I'm able to connect to her and simply listen and see her rather than disconnect from her and fix it and give advice that she's not asking for. And the way to do that is to be first connected to myself and notice when I'm no longer listening to learn, I'm now listening to fix move back into listening to learn so I can more deeply and intimately connect with my wife. And yep, in case you're wondering, all of these same tools are available when it comes to connecting to God. So all of this stuff I'm giving you, this is episode two. We're still kind of in the primer stage of the podcast where I'm just laying some foundation, 
topics that we will just be revisiting over and over again and going deeper and going broader. So I know I'm moving a little quick here, but in short, the beauty of a predictable pattern is now we can preempt it. If we know that we're prone to people-pleasing, prone to perfection, prone to giving advice, now we can do what we call brave practice by one of two things. We can intentionally put ourselves in a situation where we would typically get reactive and get back in those ruts in the road. But because it's brave practice, we can show up to that situation and observe ourselves in that situation to grow our capacity to be connected and manage our reactivity. Tangible example for me is I would make a habit of meeting once in a while with my harsh critics so that I could stay connected to them rather than being defensive, rather than incessantly needing to explain myself. I could simply sit with them and listen to learn. I could die to my need for them to understand me. That's a big false need of mine. I need you to understand me. And if you don't understand me, let me use more words. You know, that's a predictable pattern in my life. So brave practice gets so powerful because you can actually preempt your future reactivity by intentionally putting yourselves in situations. Now, don't put yourself in danger and don't do some practice that makes you wind up in jail, of course. But look, if you're a perfectionist, why don't you make a mistake on purpose this week? Make a mistake that affects another human being and do it on purpose and see what it's like. Some of you right now, you're turning off the podcast. You're like, this guy's crazy. If that really violates you, just sit with that and ask yourself, why is that such a problem? Why is my brain right now telling me to be suspicious of this guy or that that would be a terrible thing? If you like to be there for others, you're going to have to let someone down this week. These are the kinds of brave practices that we do when I work with organizations. (laughs) Maybe you're not ready for that extreme level. What you can do is simply look at events coming up in your life and you can realize, okay, this is the predictable pattern. This is the kind of person that I quickly get irritated by. I've got a meeting with this person, like look in your calendar, you're like, oh gosh, I'm meeting with Jim. Jim always drives me crazy. That's fantastic. So the next time you meet with Jim, you can go in realizing, I always get reactive. I'm actually going to work on connecting deeper to Jim and be more aware of myself. And then over the course of weeks and months, you become transformed. Because what you realize is when you walk into that meeting with Jim, you're not alone. God is with you. And when you know God is with you, you can do just about anything. Okay, let's get to one event coming up this year. I kind of buried the lead a bit there at the top. 2024, here is one event coming up, particularly for those of us in North America. We have in the United States a federal election. Now, I understand that the American election affects the whole world, but it might be that you're watching or listening to this somewhere else around the globe, and it's not as a big a deal for you. Maybe you could choose uh, something this year that you think is going to be a big deal, but I'm going to use the United States federal election as an example. I've got a couple of words. First of all, yikes. It seems like every election we get a little crazier in this country. I've been in the United States since 1992, So it feels like in some ways I've only known escalating elections, but I think it's a fair bet that this year is going to be a little nuts. And what that's going to look like is some of your relationships are going to be challenged. Some of you in communities like a church community, you're going to have wildly different values and opinions. Those of you on social media, you're going to be tempted to correct somebody on social media because of their stupid opinion and you're going to believe that your comment is actually going to help back to reactivity there. 
we have an opportunity between the stimulus of the upcoming federal election to live in the space and choose our response. So let me give you two simple things that are guaranteed to generate reactivity so that we can work on those two things and lower our reactivity in 2024 and increase our connection, our connection with each other to actually be at peace, shalom community, the way the scriptures invite us, that we can love our brother, our sister, our enemy. It's quite powerful. Okay, one of the surefire ways to generate reactivity in another person is when you violate their core values. When somebody violates a value of yours, you will get reactive. It's just human nature. One of the things I'm going to encourage you to do is make a list of your core values. And those of you in North America, I would actually encourage you to make a list of your political core values. You know, it makes sense. The reason we get so reactive with politics is it's so personal to who we are and how we think the world should be. And so my opinion as a pastor, especially as an immigrant pastor, is it does seem that American politics tend toward more idolatry than even maybe other countries. We tend to put way too much hope and value in our political system. I don't know why we do it. Man, some of those folks are just nuts. Go ahead and write down your values. And then the second dynamic that is guaranteed to generate reactivity in you is judgmentalism. Now, these two are very closely linked, values, violation, and judgmentalism. When you are judging somebody, it's impossible to also connect with them. You cannot judge somebody and connect with them at the same time. Judging somebody is an act of getting bigger. You are now the better man or the better woman, right? Some of you watching this or listening to this, you might be saying, well, I'm not a judgmental person. You probably are. You probably judge mental people. Like it's very difficult to truly be a non-judgmental person. But if you list your core values, particularly your core political values, and then if you can learn to notice when you have moved from connection to judgment in your mind, now we have some superpowers to navigate the 2024 election cycle. What you could do for your brave practice is you could intentionally follow people with a very different political persuasion than you on social media and read some of what they say and some of their comments to practice noticing your own reactivity. I would recommend you don't comment yourself, just do it for your own practice. Now, what am I saying here? Am I suggesting that we should all just be pot-smoking hippies that have no values? No, not at all. In fact, what I'm encouraging you to do is keep your values high, but no longer let your values have the last word in your capacity to connect to another human being. In other words, have your values be passionate about them, believe in them deeply, but don't let that be the brick wall. What we see in American politics is a lot of generalizations, a lot of name-calling, gross mischaracterizations on both political parties. And that is the sign that those people are now reactive. They are now treating the other or the enemy as inhumane. These generalizations, like all Democrats are blank, all Republicans are blank, that would be the simplest way to see it. So make a list of your political values. Go on social media, or maybe for you, it can just be grabbing someone for lunch. Ask them curious questions about their politics. And notice when your brain has moved off connection and into judgment. And now, here we are in January. This episode is being released in January. The election's in November. Things are going to get wild. 
Pay attention to your hopes and your fears. What do you hope for? What are you afraid of? In that stimulus before the response, in that space, let that be the measure of your prayer with God, that your engagement with God. What does God think about your hopes and fears? Invite God into that process. And then the final step, make a list of behavioral values for yourself when someone violates one of your values. In other words, if they violate your value, that's the stimulus, and your response would usually be judgmentalism or make a comment on their, you know, put them in their place, then make a list now of how are you going to treat people who violate your values. And by doing that, I would highly encourage you to let the Gospels be your guide, let Jesus of Nazareth be your guide on how Jesus commands his followers to treat somebody with radically different values, a so-called enemy using gospel language, and how can you treat them? Because I don't know any other way that this country is going to stay connected if we keep othering each other, if we keep demonizing each other. And shouldn't it be that God's followers are the best at connecting broader? So that final step of having a stated list of values of how I want to treat people when they mistreat me or how I want to treat people when I'm triggered. I've been doing this now for a few years. One of the reasons I go on Twitter is to bravely practice my reactivity. One of my values is I'm not going to ever try to put someone in their place on social media and I'm not going to uh, post a corrective comment. Now, I got to say, I don't always know if that's the right thing. Like when do you stand up, right? And when do you be silent? that may be for another podcast episode because sometimes standing up is the right thing and sometimes silence is the wrong thing. And sometimes standing up is amplifying that bad voice. It's complicated. But it's really wild how often I am tempted to put someone in their place. But because I have my stated values, that keeps me connected. That's reactivity, the contagious nature of reactivity, the way it's generated by false belief or a false need, uh, getting bigger and smaller, and then just very tangibly paying attention to your values, paying attention to the kinds of people you judge, which tempts you to see them as anything other than human, disconnects you, and then reconnecting, inviting the Lord, and seeing if you and I together can navigate something where the stakes are really high, something that really matters, like a federal election, remembering God's sovereignty and relaxing into God's presence in the midst of it all. Thanks. Look forward to seeing you next week. Being Human is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced and edited by Matt Stevens. The associate producers are Mackenzie Hill and Ray Gilliam, with music by Dan Phelps, mix engineer Kevin Morris, and graphic design by Amy Jones. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.